Live. Live from This is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his head. Follow me. Follow me to freedom. Ready for this. Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering podcast, featuring New York sports talk and a long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We are going to be talking all about tennis this week. I got a have a conversation with John Wertheim, who covers tennis for Sports Illustrated and Tennis Channel. That conversation is coming up in just a bit. Tennis is one of the few sports that's had some trouble getting back up. We'll talk to John about some of the issues that they are having getting their tours resumed what that can mean for the U.S. Open, for the French Open, all that good stuff coming up with John in just a bit. I also talked to another John at the end of the podcast, the great John Stanko, will be joining us, the podcast resident film critic. We will talk about the state of the movie industry right now, which is in a bit of peril due to the coronavirus situation. A lot of theaters have not opened up yet, and the ones that have do not have fresh inventory to show. I'll talk to John about that, as well as our thoughts on the great movie Parasite, the 2019 Oscar Award winner for Best Picture. I checked it out recently. We will have a discussion about that as well. But I want to get us started today with another look at the baseball situation, which I feel like we're doing this every week. It's getting repetitive, but there is still stuff going on here. At the draft on Wednesday, Rob Manfred was asked by ESPN's Carl Ravage whether we'd have a season. He said 100% there will be baseball. He maintained hope that the sides could reach a deal. Whether that's coming remains to be seen. As of recording this introduction on Friday afternoon, June 12th, the, the owners are expected to make an offer that moves closer to the player's direction. Right now, the proposed details out there are they play about 72 games, give the players 80% of their prorated pay, a bigger playoff bonus, and they also increase the amount of money the players get paid if the postseason gets canceled, which is always a risk considering there's a possibility of a second wave of COVID-19. And as we've seen recently, if you live outside the tri-state area, chances are your infection rate is starting to go up. States like Arizona, Texas, Florida, California, as they've been reopening, have seen their coronavirus cases increase. New York is still going down. They are the exception to the rule right now. Everybody else seems to be going up. And that's a concern with baseball, which has blown its opportunity to get out of the gates, get themselves started, because the last thing you want for baseball is to start your season and stop it. That would be an absolute disaster. And their plan is more fraught with peril because unlike the NBA, unlike the NHL, they are not going to one place. They are not going to Arizona, all 30 teams start the season. They are not taking the show to one place and just playing out the year. They are playing in all 30 home ballparks over a bunch of different states with a bunch of different COVID conditions. So what does that mean if New York stays good? What happens if California gets to the point where they say we can't stage games? I got to find new homes for five teams. That's a problem. The other thing that's worth noting in this negotiation is that, again, it comes down to one issue and one issue only. The rest are all secondary to this. It's the idea of pro-rated pay, and this is something that all baseball fans are sick of at this point, but it all comes down to that very vaguely worded March agreement where the owners agreed to pay the players pro-rated. The owners took it as the assumption of, we'll have fans in the stands. And when the fans are there, we'll be able to make our revenues and we'll pay. And we'll pay. If they're not, we have to renegotiate. 
The players took it as simply, this is settled. We are paying prorated money for however many games we play. Let's go once we are cleared to go. That has been the bone of the negotiations, the one sticking point the players have. And the owners just do not seem to grasp that. They just are sitting there basically sticking their hands in their pockets, claiming poor. You have Bill DeWitt going on basically radio interviews, the St. Louis Cardinals owner, and saying it's not profitable to run a baseball team. Again, so out of touch from Bill DeWitt. I mean, this industry makes over $10 billion in revenue a year. The Marlins were sold for $1.2 billion. The Royals sold for a billion dollars. Again, the owners just think we're stupid and the, as fans. And to that, I have to sit here and say, What the hell's going on out here? Baseball owners crying poor is the worst attempt at leverage I've ever seen. They're going, oh, we it's not profitable to own a business. Then why are five or six people trying to line up to buy the Mets who are on sale? Why is every sale of a team being increased exponentially in price and value? It sounds like an industry people want to get into. So claiming it's not profitable is very, very nonsensical. The players also are sort of winding themselves up saying, we agree to this. We do not want to give this up. And on principle, they're right. They have a deal. But can they be incentivized to give back some for the right concessions? Right now, 80%, I don't think gets it done. I don't because the players do have a lot of leverage here. The players do have a situation set up where the owners want expanded playoffs. The owners want players mic'd up during games. The owners like a chance to stage the home run derby or the all-star game in the offseason to make up some revenue they're going to lose there. Does that happen without a deal from the players? No. The only thing the mandated season does is it gives the, the MLB a season of baseball for whatever length they, Rob Manfred chooses as long as the players are played prorated pay. The players can get their prorated pay just by sitting there saying no. What they should be trying to do is negotiate to get themselves some things to help out. Maybe you get a boost in minimum salaries. Maybe you get the furls to make up the money later in the later on down the line. Maybe is there a common ground here at 90% where the owners give back enough so the players can say, this is a win, we got most of our stuff back, plus we got extra. There's room there to be dealt if there's wiggle room on both sides. And right now, it does not seem like there is. I feel like we're going to end up with a point where you either have one or two options occur. Option one is the owners go to the players and say, fine, we will pay you prorated. Here's how many games we can do it. Let's figure out the other stuff. That's option one. Option two is they say, you know what? Screw it. We will mandate the season. Show up to camp on July 8th, on June 24th, and we'll get ready for the season start mid-July. I think the problem you run into with that if you're the owners is that the players can sit there and say, fine, we'll show up. You don't get your playoffs. You don't get your Mike players. You don't get the all-star game after the season's over. And we're going to file a grievance because we didn't negotiate in good faith. And the grievance is fraught with peril for the owners because the grievance, the players say, show us your books. Prove to us why you could not afford to pay us prorated salaries. And the last thing the owners want to be doing right now is showing their books ahead of a 2021 CBA negotiation. It is in the best interest of both sides to get a deal done. The owners need it more, which I think is why they're so desperate to try and guilt the players into taking less money because they know the players have limited shelf lives in terms of playing careers. If this year goes away, that's one less year earning potential for them, whereas the owners, they will make up this money down the line. I think a deal can be made. I think it should be made. 
The question is whether there is enough will to compromise on both sides or if they're too stuck on their positions. I think this weekend will be key. We will talk more about this next week. I'll talk to Anthony McCarron. We're doing a whole baseball show next week. Anthony McCarron has some thoughts on the tone negotiations. Our legal guy, Philip Ray, will be here next week talking about what the outcome ends up being and what it looks like for the league and the players going forward. But up next, I'll toss my conversation with John Wertheim right after this. All right, so, John, I guess the first question I want to ask you today is, I'm speaking with John Wertheim, covers tennis for Sports Illustrated, is obviously we've seen the other sports sort of coming back, making plans to come back. Tennis has not really come up with a model yet. Like, what is the big, like, sort of holdup with the tennis plans to return to action? You know, it's, it's a great question. In some ways, tennis is really easy, right? Two guys on the opposite sides of the net. And uh, it's easy to social distance, and you're not really handling, you're not making physical contact. But what's really hampering tennis is just how global and international it is. And everyone's getting on a plane, and everyone, you know, you, we're talking about the U.S. Open. If there are no doubles, and there are no juniors, and there's no mixed doubles, it's just still. 256 players coming from more than 100 countries with coaches and physios and trainers and parents. It's just a, a big international population. Uh, that's a lot different from, you know, 16 guys on uh, on the Clippers all descending on Orlando. It's um, the, the geographic, sort of the, the global nature of tennis is usually such uh, an asset is really a liability here. Yeah, that makes some sense. And right now, this we're being the period normally where the French Open would have been being played. Right now, obviously, that would have does not happen. It got pushed back to September. U.S. Open, we're still waiting to hear. And at this point, does it sound like they're going to go ahead without fans? That's. I feel like we need to timestamp this as of uh, as of recording. Whatever today is. Yeah, as of recording. Uh, yeah, it's a go. And I don't know if the top players are going to be there. Fans are not going to be there. The big, the big sort of mystery right now is what kind of support will this get from local and state governments. But as of now, it's, it's on. And ESPN will be there, and it'll be televised, and there won't be the ticket revenue, and there won't be the suites and the hospitality, and it'll feel very different. There may not be Serena Williams and Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer either, but as, as we speak, uh, there will be a 2020 U.S. Open, yeah. Yeah, I know you mentioned earlier, and we're talk- recording currently on Monday, June 8th, and I want to throw this out there, is that there's been reports today that Rafael Nadal, Novak Djokovic are not thrilled with the restrictions. They've hinted they may not come if the event is done as it is. So would that be something you could think a threat you take seriously, and how big a blow would it be some of these big stars opt out of this over these concerns? Yeah, I, you know, it, I think it's kind of going to be up to fans to figure out how much they want to weigh it. If you're ESPN, you obviously want the stars there. Um, someone's still got to win seven, you know, seven matches on the men's side, seven matches on the women's side. There's still going to be a champion. Someone's still going to make a lot of money. But, you know, especially now, I mean, it's, it's been four years since someone outside the big three has won a major. So if this is just pick a name, you know, if Dominic Team breaks through, but Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, and uh, Roger Federer weren't even in the draw. I, I don't know how much half that title will have. On the other hand, you know, a win's a win, a major's a major, and seven matches are seven matches. So I, I think what we're seeing is that, you know, the, the same way we have 
income inequality in, in society. We have it in Tennis, too. And Roger Federer and Djokovic and Nadal can say, you know what, thanks to no thing, maybe I'll play Paris or even see you in 2021. If you are Dan Evans is a player, for example, who's been very vocal. I mean, if you're a guy ranked number 50, you'd, you'd play a tournament tomorrow. So different players have different priorities. And I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see. You know, will, will history remember this as a major if the stars don't play? Yeah, that's very true. And speaking of majors, we talk about the French Open as well. They unilaterally moved back to September. At the time, they got a lot of grief from the other events about the whole situation here. So you think you'll have the same problems the U.S. has in terms of getting people to come? Um, I, I think a lot less, in part because Western Europe seems to be uh, a little bit ahead of the U.S. I think also, remember, I mean, Roger Federer is a three-hour train ride from, uh, from Paris. Uh, Rafa Nadal from Mallorca, he can get there in, you know, an hour and a half. Um, the fact that so many top players are going to have to cross the ocean to get there, I, I also just think Western Europe and then Paris in general are going to be less restrictive. I mean, I don't know if you saw the, the restrictions, apart from having only one player in the entourage, which again, if you're right number 50 and they say you can only bring one person, you shrug yourself and say no big deal. If you're Federer and Nadal or Serena Williams, and you have a whole team, that's the team. It's almost said it's like, uh, you know, it's like saying to Bruce Springsteen, you can play, but you can't bring, you know, the, the, the drummer, the guitarist, and the saxophone player. Um, I also think that uh, in, in Paris, it does seem like the players are going to be able to have their normal routine, stay where they want to stay. They're going to be able to go out. I mean, the restrictions in New York, it's got it like every single player in the draw has to stay at the same airport hotel. Um, that's if you're if you're Novak Djokovic and you're used to a certain level of, of luxury and you come to New York and you have a suite and you're in Manhattan and suddenly they say you're at the, you're at the airport Romani Inn and you can't leave and oh yeah every other player in the draw is going to be here with you um, you may say thanks but no thanks yeah that makes sense and obviously the economic impact on the sport is enormous because the top players like you said they're doing very well they don't need to play but like how big is the layoff having effect on these these lower ranked players who need to play events to sort of keep, like just make a living? Yeah, huge. And uh, I mean, I guess if there's any good news, it's that they're not traveling; they don't have the usual expenses. But you think about guys who are you know who, who you and I have heard of, who casual fans have heard of, they haven't made a dime in income since February. Um, and this is this is not a career with a long shelf life. It's not like you can say, well, you know, in 25 years you'll get a bonus and it'll all even out. Um, a lot of players are really in distressed times right now. And, you know, I mean, I think the other thing, too, is Roger Federer has, you know, he, he lives well and he has a home gym and they all have an academy. And that's great. They've absolutely earned it. But there are other players, you know, Petra Kvinova, we talked to on tennis show, but I see it. In an apartment, you know, Bobby Constable, Constable doing push-ups and sit-ups in his apartment in Vancouver. So, uh, I mean, I, I think that different players are experiencing this very differently. And yeah, for a lot of players, if you said you can make three million dollars by winning the U.S. Open, they don't care who else is in the draw; they're signing up for that right now. Yeah, they are. And looking, I mean, looking ahead, like, when do you think we're actually get a realistic like return to tennis? You think it was going to be the U.S. swing with the Cincinnati U.S. Open kind of deal? Maybe put them back to back. Do you think we get anything before August with tennis? I mean, you know, DC and some of these August events are still 
they're still in the game. I mean, again, by the time, uh, by the end of the week, that may be different. I, I still have some guarded optimism, some suspicions about whether the Cincy U.S. Open back-to-back, playing play them all in one site in three weeks. I mean, I, I still have my suspicions whether we're going to be able to pull that off. I do think these events in Western Europe, we're talking about Madrid, we're talking about another clay court, Sweden, maybe Rome, and then the French Open. I think that's a much better bet. I do think we'll have tennis before the end of the year. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know how many fans are going to be there. I don't know how many stars are going to commit. Um, but I, I would look to uh, I would look to those events in September. Maybe it's more likely that the U.S. Open. Yeah, I also do feel bad for the traditionalists who love Wimbledon. We not get Wimbledon this year because of the pandemic. It does feel like a big loss not having Wimbledon in the middle of all of this. Yeah, I mean, Wimbledon had the benefit of uh, pandemic insurance. So they very quickly said, we hate to do it, but we're not interested in playing with no fans. We're not interested in creative scenarios. Basically, see you in 2021, everyone stay healthy. So Wimbledon has sort of avoided some of this, this drama. And, you know, I, mean, I think it's a good exercise for tennis. I mean, I think it's very healthy that people are thinking about how we can adapt and how we can be creative and how we can find solutions. We never thought we were going to have to find. I and mean, I'm, I'm all for that. But it is interesting that Wimbledon sort of said, thanks, thanks guys, see you in 2021 and moved on. And the other two events are really... Sort of, it's become the, the daily drama with no matches in the sport. The, the daily drama is becoming will this happen or won't it? Yeah, that's true. My last question for you is this. We sort of are in the midst of history pursuits in tennis right now. You have the chase for the goat race on the men's side, all the people, all Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic trying to go for the top spots. Serena trying to break Margaret Court's all time slam record. What kind of impact do you think this lost year is going to sort of have on those pursuits? Um, it's a great question. I mean, I think. You could look at it one of two ways. I mean, on the one hand, all of them have, have a finite number of opportunities, and we're just uh, eliminating three of them, uh, you know, maybe three of them. So that's unfortunate. On the other hand, it gives these players the time to rest. You know, Roger had knee surgery. We heard that his the knee surgery rehab wasn't as good as everyone thought it might be. He can probably benefit from this time. I do think it's interesting that these players are all shaping history. You know, they're, they're all bunched together in this, this pursuit of history. And yet, the four of them, you talk about the victory plus arena, have been very silent on coming back. Do you think if anybody wanted to play in the U.S. Open, it would be the guy with 20 slams and the guy behind is about 19 and the other guy at 17 and Serena wants every opportunity? I mean, it is interesting to me that the four players who, in some ways, lead these events the most have been uh, sort of loud in their silence that um, that they don't seem to be playing right now. So it's, uh, you know, I, I don't know. If, if Kevin Nadal say, I'm not playing the U.S. Open, do you think Djokovic changes his mind and says, boy, I'll try and pick off, uh, I'll try and pick off an easy one if those two guys aren't in the draw. So it's going to be a lot of intrigue um, for what, what players' priorities are. I mean, it's, the, the four players we talk about, they've got, you know, Whatever it is, half a dozen kids among them, all four of them are married, they have families, they don't need the money, but they also need every opportunity they get. So, yeah, I mean, Serena Williams, they, they all have a very important decision to make. Yeah, they do. John, thanks for all the time. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, how can people follow on social media and keep up with some of the stuff you're up to? Oh, uh, I'm mostly, uh, Twitter's mostly my, uh, my 
you know, guilty pleasure. It's John underscore Wertheim. All right, John. Thanks for the time. I really appreciate it. You got it. Keep talking. All right. And there you have it. That was John Wertheim talking about the state of tennis. Some interesting stuff from John there. Be sure to follow him on Twitter at John underscore Wertheim for more great tennis insights. But up next, we're going to talk a little movies with the great John Stanko right after this. We are back here wrapping up the show this week, talking some movies with our president film critic on the podcast, the host of Stanko Stance, the great John Stanko. John, welcome back. How are you? Thank you for having me, Mike. I'm doing all right. How about yourself? Doing pretty good. I got to say, in the routine of the quarantine podcasting, I feel like we have, you know how Billy Joel recently had, had the, uh, what do you call it, the regular engagement MSG. I feel like we have a monthly engagement where it's like Sandra Rosa, John Stanko, back to back every month. Hey, I don't mind that. A little bit of pop culture check-in, a little bit of movie check-in. Uh, we'll cover all the bases that you need. Yep, we did. Last week, we talked about Space Jam with Sam. This week, we're going bigger picture movies. And I have to say, John, it's been a while since I've been in the movies. Uh, yeah, I haven't been in the movies since I think it was the first week of February, doing some research on my own. So it's been a while for myself as well. What was the last thing you saw in theaters? The last thing I saw in theaters is a movie that probably nobody's heard, but it's called The Lodge. And it's a, it's an independent uh, horror movie made by a pair of foreign directors. Um, and Mike, it is not a happy movie. It is dark. It is extremely unsettling. And the ending, the ending had the audience in stunned silence for like two minutes before anyone got up. Because uh, it's just not happy. So, and it, it tackled the, the toxic relations, toxic, uh, aspects of isolation and religion and kind of combine the two. Uh, so that's the last movie I saw in theaters because that's what I like to do on a, on a random Tuesday night is go see movies like that. But it was very, very good. It was a great movie experience. But that is the last movie that I've seen, The Lodge, at the Alamo Draft House. Yeah, what was your grade on that movie? I give that a B plus. Yeah, so The Lodge gets a B plus. The last thing I actually saw in theaters was the Sonic the Hedgehog movie. That's the last thing I've seen in a theater this year. I actually just recently saw that. And let me tell you, Mike, it was not as bad as it ought to be. No. It was, was not terrible by any means. No, it was definitely a pleasant surprise considering the amount of bad things that were happening to it prior to the movie coming out. Yeah, yeah. They, they made up the most for it. I think they embraced what they had. and Definitely some parts didn't work, but some parts did. And, I mean, they're going to make a sequel. The movie made a ton of money and it got some positive press for, for video game movies. So... Props to them. MVP of that movie was Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey was magnetic every time he was on screen. Oh, no doubt. And I think it's just tells you something about the fact that we've had the movie shut down for so long. I think right now, I think that's the number three grossing movie on the year is the Sonic movie. I mean, yeah, I can see that. The thing is, it plays to both kids and adults a little bit because adults remember playing the game and kids will see a blue furry animal that talks in a funny voice and make pop culture jokes and they'll be like, oh, interesting. So it, it tackles both demographics. It does. And right now, the movie industry is in a bit of a crisis here because obviously with all the shutdowns from the coronavirus pandemic, most theaters around the country have been closed for a long time. Ones that are open now, like 
they have obviously reduced capacities. And they don't have any new films to show because I think the next new film on the calendar is Christopher Nolan's Tenet on July 17th. And we've talked off air about you think that this could be a sort of a speeding up here of a new me new normal for the movie industry. What did you mean by that? The thing is, I I think that while the movie industry now is in really big trouble, I think it's been on a steep decline for for quite a while. Um, I think that. Netflix once it once it dug its hand in the dirt and said, "All right, we're going to do Oklahoma drill movie industry, and we're going to create our own content, and we're going to see who comes out on top." I think Netflix and the streaming services have begun pushing around the movie theaters uh, and and movie and the movie industry as a whole. So, I think that the state of the movie industry is going to have to make a permanent change, um, and it was very reluctant to change anything, but now rather than making a gradual change. Movie theaters, movie production companies, Hollywood itself is going to need to make a drastic 180 kind of switch to try and adapt and get people into the movie theater to watch their type of movies. So I think things are, I think trouble's on the horizon. And the thing is, the movie industry had a chance to kind of prepare for it. Instead, they now they have to do one last uh, defense at the OK Corral to try and save their industry. Yeah, I definitely get the sense of that because I mean now people have been home for so long. They're used to seeing these movies on their on their big television screens with and they can pause it when they want. They don't have to pay fifteen dollars for a ticket, another ten for popcorn and a drink. So I, I could see the the threat right now. This is when Netflix putting out their own original content and we saw Universal basically put Troll put uh Trolls World Tour right on on demand. They did pretty well with that. They did very well with it. And the thing is like like you could only buy it and it's like to, or you could rent it, but the rent was twenty dollars each time. And I know parents who had to rent it for six straight weeks, paying the twenty dollars every week, and it was just it's constant purchases of that. Um, personally, I hate that because I am just speaking for myself. I don't have the funds to spend twenty five dollars, twenty dollars on a rental. I can't do that. Like I can't do that every week. I'll spend maybe three dollars. I really, really want to see the movie, but I can't do 20 bucks. So the at-home movie experience, which this coronavirus kind of brought to the forefront on the platforms, uh, it's not good for the people who went to the movie theater as a way to escape, get out of their house, and like saw it as like, all right, here's my fun money. I'm going to spend $20 on a ticket and go escape for a while. You don't get that same enjoyment when you're doing it at home. And so unless you have a reason to rent it to literally occupy little kids like Rose World Tour, it's it, it's tough to, to really commit to it. Yeah, I agree to that. And also, it's just sort of a big deal, just this whole idea that you're thinking about, like, you know, the whole experience of the movie theater has to change because, like, right now, it's like people are going to have very, considering all the downfall the economy has had, people are going to have a lot less disposable income to do it. And I don't think the idea of sitting in a crowded theater with, like a bunch of people spending twenty five dollars for one two hour movie is gonna is gonna fly as well anymore. No, and I would agree with that, and that's why that's where movie theaters have to kind of change their policy of how they're gonna make money, uh, because I think from what I heard that concessions was a huge way in which they made a profit, and that's why things were so high priced so often was because that was the easiest turnaround for cash, and the margin of profit for the theaters was in the concessions. Now, like, how do you combat that? Do you raise the ticket prices? But you can say, all right, it's bring your own snacks, bring your own drink. Like, is that a way to kind of raise ticket prices, but you can make it a more custom experience for the people who go? 
But in that case, how do you police the alcohol or stuff like that that people bring in when it's not uh, like a movie going experience that would be beneficial to, to that kind of uh, that kind of beverage consumption? So there are different ways that the movie theaters can kind of approach it. I'm going to tell you a pitch that I have, a dream, Mike Phillips. Sure. Is a dream. You know how if you go like virtual golfing or top golf, you get like a lounge. And it's like you can get 10 people in a fairly like isolated area and you get like food, drink, and you're just focused on the one thing that you're doing, especially in like virtual golf. You literally have a screen in front of you. There's 10 of you around. You're hanging out, doing whatever. I would be very curious if a movie theater would do something like that where instead of big, big rooms of people where you have like 200 seat theaters, you have mini rooms of like comfortable couches where you can get like eight to ten people and then you have like the new movie playing on a really nice projector a really nice screen with like food and drink that they can hang out watch the movie these rooms are soundproof so if you want to hang out with your friends watching a new movie and talk during it as if it's like a horror movie and say oh no don't open that door and scream like that or if you have the like for me if you have eight people who like myself would like to just sit kind of like watch the movie and like be really into it you could have a room like that where if you get friends together and it's quiet like that, you could have those different kinds of experiences. Now, how much do you pay? Do you pay for the time? Do you pay for the amount of people? Stuff like that. That is, I wonder if they can go to something like that where you're not going to have as many people in as big of a room and also these rooms then you then you clean after and stuff like that. So that's a pitch and a dream I have is that movie theaters, if they change to that, they can cater to People wanted to hang out in smaller sessions and smaller groups of people that they know and that they trust, but also still kind of have that movie going experience and kind of, and they can maybe even make it more fun if they make these rooms soundproof enough to be next to each other. So that's kind of, that's what, that's the pitch I have. That's the dream. I do think that's a good idea. I do think it's kind of like an offshoot of like what Alamo does right now, where you sort of have like these smaller theaters, like it's sort of like taking up to the next level, because I think it does make some sense in terms of like, the mall, one of the, the local malls by me was dead for a long time, and now they've been not focusing much on stores, but sort of adding experiences that bring people out. Like, there's an escape room place in that mall when it's open. There's, like, things for kids to do. There's a gym. It's, like, this this mall directly basically said, like, people don't need to shop in physical malls right now. They can go on Amazon. They can do a lot of things. We're going to try and give them activities they can't do online. That's sort of the idea you're coming with the movies here. Yeah, so that, yeah, I would agree. And escape rooms are that's a great example actually of like getting people together, getting a group of friends, and you guys are in a room hanging out and like being together for that time. So again, it's very very similar to that. Um, so that that's the way the movie theater experience is going to change. I think one other big thing is we don't know what movies are going to be in theaters when at this point. We've had so many movies that have been pushed back that were expected to come out this year uh, during the summer and are coming either out to the winter or till next year, twenty twenty one. We're going to have so many movie projects that are backed up because production just literally could not happen uh, because of coronavirus. We're going to have planned productions that wanted to film overseas in different places on different settings that might not be allowed to happen because of travel restrictions with the coronavirus in different countries having different rules. Uh, they're going to have different limits to the amount of people you can have on crew and on set. There's so many different things that are going to happen like that. I don't know all the questions to. I don't know all the answers to, but I think that after this year and maybe early 2021, when we see all these movies that are originally going to come out during the summer pushed back, once you get past that threshold of the movies that we know are done and ready to go, 
I'm very curious to see what happens maybe mid-2021 and forward and if we have any original content that's going to be exciting that people are going to want to go see and if there's going to be either a lot of it or a really slim amount. Yeah, I'm intrigued as well because, I mean, we've we talked about offline all the different movies that have gone backwards. I mean, Black Widow got pushed back. Bond was the first one that got pushed back in November. We've seen movies get pushed into next year because these movie theaters don't want to lose the gate. And right now, I mean, like, you're opening at most theaters. They can only have, like, 25% of your audience capacity in there. And that's not a problem if you have one movie come out. Like, let's say Tenet does come out on the 17th. You could put it on every screen, sort of make up your revenue that way. But, like... It's hard to see, like, A, if there's enough movies to sustain it, and B, like, you're a big movie guy. Would you be the first one running into a theater, like, and considering the situation there's no vaccine, no cure for this thing yet? I'm going to be honest, like, I would be. Um, that's the honest answer. One, because if I'm going to spend $20 to see the movie, I am not going to watch it on the TV in my house. Part of me going to the movie theater is my escape. It's my... I shut my phone off and I focus on the movie and I focus on the experience. I have a harder time doing that at home. It's just, it's natural. I'm going to have my phone plugged in. I get a text. I'm going to look at it. It's really harder for me to focus. Even though I have a fairly good setup in my apartment, it's just like, it's like the mental thing of like, once you're in a movie theater, you're there for the movie. You're not there for anything else whatsoever. So I, I will go because. I, I want to trust the movie theaters for the process that they have. I also want to support the movie theaters because I love going there. And the only way they're going to be able to stay in business is to have people go. Um, and for the people who work there and own these different theaters, that's how they're going to get business. So I will go. I, I will abide by all the guidelines. I Maybe I won't go to a Saturday night, what would be a primetime show. Maybe instead I'll go to a Wednesday at 3 o'clock if I can. Or... Wednesday or like Tuesday night when it's like not as crowded. Maybe I'll take those little precautions, but I will be going to the movie theater when they open. Um, and because Tenet's the first one scheduled to come out, we'll see if that still is on track. Right now, I'm a little bit pessimistic, but if Tenet's coming out in theaters, you can bet your bottom dollar I'm going to be sitting in a comfy seat watching it in a theater. Yeah, and Tenet's an interesting test case being the first one back because Christopher Nolan has made it clear. He's like, this is a movie that has to be experienced in theaters. I'm not putting it on streaming. I'm going to wait till I can get my audiences in there. And one thing he did point out that's interesting is that the trailer, the last trailer that came out, like, basically did not put the date out anymore. It just said coming to theaters, like hammering home. It's going to theaters. I'm not guaranteeing the date yet, but it's going to be in a theater. Yeah, I mean, the thing with Christopher Nolan is his name sells tickets. So if you're going to have a theater, if you're going to have a movie, open up the theater business again, Tenet would be it, right? There are very few directors who could sell tickets strictly on their own. So, and it, almost every single Christopher Nolan movie you watch has to be seen through theaters. Can you imagine if Interstellar or Inception came out on streaming first? Like, it, it would not have the lasting impact and the word of mouth talking about those movies. If they came out only on Amazon Prime or Netflix to start, they would have a month of people talking about it. But the ending to Inception would not be still one of the most hotly debated things on the Internet if it was strictly coming to streaming first. Because the nature of streaming is that it's really cyclical and you're the top of you're the talk of the town for a week and then you're absolutely dead after that. Yes, I would agree with that. And I think they're going to end up shifting this back. That's my general sense. I feel like that's going to get pushed back a little bit because... Right now at the timetable, like it does not look like New York City will be ready for movie theaters by the time that date comes out, and that's a lot of tickets they will lose if they don't have that open. So I suspect it's going back a couple of months. 
Yeah, I, I'm willing to bet it gets pushed back to the, uh, either October or November, if I had to bet. If I was a betting man, that's what I would bet. Yeah, the other interesting one right away, I think, is Mulan's coming out a week after that, and that's one that also could bring in people because it's a live-action Disney film. But again, Disney, I don't know if they're going to be want to be the, the first one out if they don't have New York City. That's true, and Disney, they already they had the big release of Artemis Fowl, um, which they were going to put in theaters, but then they announced it was going to streaming, and that's coming out uh, very soon from the day we're recording this. So... We'll see how that performs on the streaming service, and maybe the way that that movie performs will be some sort of hint as to the way Disney will approach Mulan. And Mulan's a much bigger project and a much bigger possibility of profit for Disney, but they could use something like if Artemis Fowl has success as a reason or a benchmark to make Mulan uh, maybe available on streaming faster. Yeah, I think the thing I see is I'll see I could see movies like that, like Trolls World Tour, being pushed on streaming because made they didn't have huge box office expectations where like okay we can make more of a novelty act when people are trapped in their homes want something to watch. But like I think any of these big budget movies at the big blockbusters, like any of your Marvel products, the live action Disney products, Tenet, like like Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four, I think they will wait on those till they can get the audiences in the theaters because I think they know there's money to be made on that. People, we've seen how desperate they are just to get out of their homes. And if you give them a fresh movie, people will go see it. It's true, but you already mentioned that with the with the economic times right now, people aren't going to have this full income. And if all these movies are going to be pushing back to a later date, they're going to be competing against each other. People pick out dates to release movies years in advance when they, can eat, when they feel like they can beat out their opponents at the movie theater. And now you're going to have what Wonder Woman possibly going up against like something like Free Guy or something like that from with Ryan Reynolds. Like you're going to have bigger movies coming out around the same time, so the amount of time they're going to be able to dominate the box office is not going to be as high unless your movie is one of a kind and it really breaks the barrier, which is going to be tougher to do when you have so many different movies. Yeah, I do think the ones that get hurt the most are these smaller budget films, independent films, because like right now it's like they're not going to have as many opportunities to get in the theaters because they're just obviously production shut down. Like the calendar will be so compacted now with all these big projects sort of stacking up on top of each other. A lot of these smaller films are not going to have a chance to shine. Yeah. And the big thing with the smaller films, Mike, is that all these film festivals that would usually be happening now have been canceled. Yeah. And so that's where all these films got bought up and that's where they got the word of mouth attention in the marketing that maybe got people interested to go see them. But now with all those film festivals canceled, what's going to happen to these independent movies? And my, my big fear is that what the movie industry is going to do when things kind of settle down is in order to get people back in the theater, they are going to create more nostalgia and more things that they know the audience will come out and see just to try and get people in the seat. And I'm really worried that that's going to lead, lead to even less uh, original ideas appearing in theater because they don't generate as much money as often unless you have, like, a Christopher Nolan directing the movie. So, again, I'm worried for, like, 2021, how many just run-of-the-mill, like, recycled storytelling, big Armageddon-like adventures are we going to get? How many comic book movies? How many different movies are we going to get within that year? I'm really worried about that. Yeah, so in other words, you're concerned we're going to see more of the sequel culture, more of the same same, more like, oh, we'll get, like, Fast 11 fast track into a theater before we get, like, anything ri- really original. Exactly. That, that is what I hear. That, that is what I hear. 
Yeah. But the thing is, like, my thinking for myself personally, I'm tired of comic book movies. I'm tired of people culture. I'm tired of Star Wars movies. They put out too many of them too fast. Like, a movie, uh, I don't know if you saw Extraction on Netflix with Chris Hemsworth. I have not seen but it yet. That was like, it was like an action movie that it looked like it could have been in theaters. And frankly, there are some aspects of it that are as good as John Wick and just like the way the action set pieces happen, the violence of it. Seeing that in a theater, I would have been jacked up. But the thing is, that came to streaming. I'd rather see a movie like Extraction in theaters than to see something like Black Widow. Because I know what Black Widow is going to give me because I've seen comic book movies before and it takes a lot to make me excited and really talk about a comic book movie after I see it. So I'm worried again for like 2021 when we get back to that. We're just going to get more of the same. And like movies go in cycles and the way movies come out. But I think the cycle of sequels and comic books and extravagant storytelling that we've seen now, since stories being retold, I think that that threat is going to continue now for years because of coronavirus kind of expanding it. Yeah, also one other wrinkle I was interested to think about now is like, obviously the one thing that seemed, seemed to be safer right now to do in terms of coronavirus is the drive-in theater aspect. And we've seen some municipalities saying, you know, like we're allowed drive-ins now. You can go see movies at drive-ins. Do you think this could lead to a mini resurgence for the drive-in? This is going to be pessimistic, thank you, but I don't think so, Mike. Um, because I think that drive-in movie theaters still require people to get out of their homes. And to go do something. And I think if you put a new movie on a drive-in theater, and if you put a new movie on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, wherever, HBO Max, they're going to sit at home and watch it. And they're not going to go drive to a, movie, to a drive-in theater and watch it. Now, I think drive-ins have a proper place for showing classic movies and getting people out of the house for like a way to treat the family, something like that. Like If they showed Jurassic Park in a drive-in, I would be there in a heartbeat to go watch like Jurassic Park or Indiana Jones. Or something like that. Or even at this point, I would rewatch the trilogy of Lord of the Rings on a drive-in theater because it's remembering something that happened in the past. But a new movie, I think people are still going to want to see the comfort of a new movie in their own house. I think drive-ins are more for building the nostalgia aspect for that. So that's why I'm a little bit worried that they don't have the lasting impact of the revitalization they're having right now. Yeah, the other thing we're concerned about for a driving aspect is that usually they put the they get their bank for the buck. They show you two movies in a row. Usually they make sure you're there for the whole night. It's not like oh, I'm here for driving for two hours and I'm leaving. It's like there's not much inventory out there right now. And like honestly, like Tenet and Mulan is a very bad pairing. It's like and you need to find movies that actually fit together. That's the worst pairing of all time. That's, yeah. that's terrible. Um, so yeah, that's a, that's a great point. Like, what movies do you pair together? Do you pair together a new movie? With an old movie, and in that case, which movie do you show first? Do you show the new one, which people want to see, or do you show the old one, where people are going to be like, man, 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 show me the new stuff first? I mean, these are stuff I don't have the answer to. It's just questions to ask. I like, if they, like, if they showed, like, a, like, again, a Tenet came out, but before they showed, like, Inception or Interstellar, or if they showed something like Memento or Insomnia, like, something else that no one did that's interesting, you're like, hmm, all right, this is why I'll go. Um, but it, that's not for everybody. Yeah, like if if you gave me like the memento, like like a uh, tenant, like double feature, the driving, I'm there. That's my thing. That's my like ticket to go. Yeah, or like maybe another movie that has like an affliction of time in it and how time is warped and stuff, stuff like that, and how you can adjust time. So it's, you could try and get the theme and the motif like that, but again, I think that's harder to buy if you're not a really big movie lover. It's tough to sit still for for two hours for some people. Imagine trying to do it for four and a half. 
Yeah, that's a, that's definitely a challenge. And I mean, before we move on to Parasite, I mean, like, let's think right now. Like, obviously, like we are still like a couple of weeks away from having potentially the first major movie back in theaters. A lot of these movie theaters are open around showing like stock films they have, classics, trying to get people in the in the audience. Like, what is your ma- belief will happen once we start getting the first couple of big movies back in you think people are gonna f- be flocking to theaters things be slower drip what do you, what do you think is gonna happen i i think it's gonna be i think it's gonna be slow mike until we get a movie that that really transcends something um and i think that's gonna be hard i think that's gonna be hard to do i think tenant honestly has a great chance because i think the word of mouth of no one's movies is arguably more powerful than any commercials that the movie has i think that marketing of word of mouth is something that will get people going to the theater. I I don't like I don't think Black Widow is going to go and generate droves of audiences to a movie theater. I do think like I think No Time to Die it, it will bring people to the movie theater because it's much more of an international thing. Uh, but that doesn't come out till November. Um, and I think maybe if looking like the February twenty twenty one the next comic book movie that I think is really going to generate a ton of interest is The Eternals, right? Yeah. But that's like coming out to February 2021. And that's like the next phase of Marvel for everybody. And they're like, what's going to happen? Nobody knows. That will get people to come out to it. But that's not happening for a very long time. So I, th- I think it's going to be slow. I, I-, I think it's going to be slow out the gate. Um, I think Tenet is going to really need to carry that burden and kind of crash through the first wave and, and hopefully generate some momentum behind it. But I think it's going to be slow to begin with. I think it'll be slow to begin with, and the industry also has to hope that we don't get this predicted second wave of COVID that could force shutdowns again, because I don't think they can really sustain a second period where they're basically getting no revenue for long stretches. No, like AMC, like AMC uh, declared bankruptcy, but now that possibly their stock is better, so now they're okay. Um, like I know a place like Alamo Draft Houses are going to have to close because it's just a local movie theater. If they don't people going to the theater, it, it's tough to maintain, so... It's going to be hard, Mike. It's really hard to be optimistic about the movie, the movie industry and going to the movies. It's really hard to be optimistic right now. It is hard to be optimistic, but let's change gears a little bit. We'll give people something a little, little more interesting to talk about. I recently, I mean, the last time you were on here, we did the movie queue rearranging, the Netflix DVD queue on there. I've been a little behind, but I did finally get to Parasite, so I'm excited to talk about it with you. Before we go to that, I want to put the spoiler warning up. Okay, if you have not seen the 2019 Best Picture winner, Parasite, get out, go watch the movie. If you if you don't want to be spoiled, then come back and listen to us. But, John, I have to admit, I love this movie. Mike, is this a perfect movie? I'll take your question. Yeah, this is a fantastic movie. No doubt in my mind. Like, I was blown away by what I saw. I told you. this is the, It was the best movie of 2019. It's also arguably the most entertaining movie of 2019. It was for me. Like, give me Parasite over, like, Endgame. Any day of the week, 100, 100 times over. Uh, Parasite for me was it's the most mesmerized I've been watching a movie probably since Mad Max Fury Road, when all I wanted to do was talk about it after I watched it. So, again, I love Parasite. I've told you a thousand times. I've written about it. I tell everybody to watch it no matter what. And every time I do, my people are like, that movie was great. How had I never heard of it before? I'm just like, you need to expand your mind. Like, again, get over the barrier of subtitles because there's a lot of good movies uh, that, that have subtitles. So I'm glad that you enjoy Parasite. Yeah, I think the subtitles help this movie immensely because obviously the whole thing is in Korean. So 
aside from a couple of English phrases that pop up every now and then. So, like, this is not a movie where you can be staring at your phone because you will lose wise dialogue. You have no idea what the hell's going on. So it's nice that you can just sort of, like, focus in, pay attention, and they do a good job because there's not, like, a ton of, like, flashy things going on. It's a very simple, grounded storyline. I think it's very, very deep into issues of class and stuff like that. Yeah, no, it, it, it's very subtle in the way it kind of it pokes at, at social inequality. It, it pokes at stereotypes and stuff like that. Um, I think one thing actually I saw, like, it's super subtle that I didn't even know it until I watched a video about it is um, there is a point where, I mean, we talk about how, how the father the father of the, of the, of the poor family, uh, actually, I believe his name is, Actually, talk. I, I don't know his name. John, before we get there, can you actually, before we go deeper, can you give people the basic premise, like of of the story here, before, so we can set up your point better? I mean, how do you how do you explain the basic? The basic premise is a out of luck family is grant uh, a boy of an out of luck family is granted the opportunity to tutor someone in a very wealthy family, and. Basically, the wealthy family and the wife of that wealthy family are gullible, and the poor family finds a way to infiltrate the wealthier lifestyle, and then all hell breaks loose. One by one, basically. Yeah, one by one, they they infiltrate. It's like like a spy espionage ring, and they work their way into the home and infest it like rodents, like ants, Uh, and and then all hell breaks loose. And the ending of the movie is a horror movie, which you just never see coming. Uh, It's I just see it like that. Yeah, I think it's a great explanation of it because, like, honestly, like, it's a great con story. Like, you love, like, at times you're, you're, you're basically talking about where you're rooting for the lower class family to find a way to pull this off and basically sneak in and basically con this upper class family who nice people have no idea what they're doing with their money. And it's interesting watching the parasitic relationship they, the two sides have with each other because as... I watched a Q&A on the DVD with Bong Joon-ho, and he talks about the whole idea of the parasite nature. He's like, yeah, the lower-class family are parasites because they're leeching off of the money of the upper-class people, but the upper-class people are leeching off of the lower-class's labor because the wife doesn't know how to cook, the, the, the husband doesn't know how to drive, like, they're, they don't know how to do their laundry. They're using them to basically live. Yeah, again, that's the thing. Like, you say you're rooting for the, the lower-class family, but are you the entire time? Like, I think that's what this movie does so well is that they, the, the idea of empathy, it's just like, uh, the way I describe it and I picture it in my head is like, it's a cluster of barbed wire, where no matter what character you try and untie and stretch out that barbed wire, there's going to be different things that poke you, and they make you go to somebody else to try and understand them, and you're still going to get poked. There are ragged edges to every single character in this movie, and to feel empathy for them is really hard to do. I think that's so, that's what's so good about functional storytelling, is that you can identify with every character and what they want to do, and you can see why you believe their actions are right and wrong. That's so hard to do when it's usually defined in black and white. This movie is all gray all the time and forces you to think about it, both during and after. I will also say, I think the one rule character in the whole movie is the little boy, Da Song. Like, he gets the worst shake in the entire movie. That kid is going to be screwed for life. Yeah, I mean, that kid... How creepy was that shot uh, when they when they showed the the man who has been living underneath the basement just the whites of his eyes yeah. in, in the staircase? Like that's not genuinely creepy. That's where this movie's like a horror movie because it's scary. So you understand why that kid is having having a seizure. Yeah, that kid obviously he's that like, 
we get most of the one of the keys to the con is obviously like the kid like the parents claim the kid is traumatized and he needs some therapy because he sees I think the storyline is the the original housekeeper like her husband is living underneath the house in a basement level and he sneaks up at night to get food. The kid happened to be going down for to get a piece of his birthday cake. He sees the guy. He freaks the hell out. And then for obvious reasons, because you see this random dude in your house that you never met before. Like, And then later on in the movie, he's having a birthday party. He sees his father get murdered. Yeah, I mean, that kid's scarred for life. Like, there's, there's, there's no bones about it. Yeah. But, like, I, he's screwed. Like, uh, the, the ending to this movie, you... If you haven't seen it, there's no way you can predict it. No, you can't. I don't think there is any way you could possibly predict the ending to this movie. If you watch the first 45 minutes, hour of this movie, you still have no idea what the last half hour brings. Yeah, you don't. You're, you're sitting there like after the whole like horror movie fight breaks out where basically you end up with other people dying, this whole like deluge of blood and death, and you're sitting there like, where are we going for the next like 25 minutes? Yeah, and then and then the ending is, I think, made to make you like think if you think it's real or not of like uh, of the son of the of the poor family being able to get rich by the house to save his father. Is that just a dream? Is he just writing it? Is that real life? Like them walking together and hugging in in the living room. It's it's this movie makes you think on so many different levels. Even when it's like not blatantly explaining things to you, it's putting things in the back of your head that that kind of stuck you in and there's there's this there's one like there's one liners that just stick with you like i believe it is after the the poor uh aspect of this korean town is flooded and they're all sitting together in the the giant assembly room and they're sleeping in wet clothes and stuff like that and the father's talking to the son about you know what plan never fails having no plan at all and talks like that just stick with you that you know the poor people like, sometimes they can't plan for anything because they don't know what they have, and you can't plan because then you can't have failure, and failure is not disappointment. And there's so many aspects and levels to this movie from, from a societal and economic aspect like that. Yeah, speaking of the level, that's another interesting theme that sort of plays throughout this movie, that they play with the idea of the height of the actual, like, homes of the people. Like, the poor family is in a subterranean, like, apartment, basically. You see, like, it's in Squalo, like, they... Are basically there's junk everywhere. It's a disaster. They have to climb to like the top of their toilet to get Wi-Fi access. And you have this beautiful rising structure of the rich of the rich family's home. I like the idea of playing of how they play with the levels, sort of a metaphor of, of the stratification of classes. Oh yeah, I mean the the scene after the uh, it is the son's birthday and it's raining, so they have to come home, and so the so the poor family has to escape. And they're just running downstairs, which are constantly flooding with water. It's like they're running through the different, like, mazes in an an anthill, where you only see the top, right? And you can see kind of what happens, and that's like the rich people in this Korean society. You see that aspect. But if you dive deeper and if you go underground, there's so many things built on top of each other with different mazes connecting to different things. And that's what it was like with a scorpion trying to escape back to what they had to, to see that it was all gone. It's like that thing of allegory of the cave, right? Um, you learn this in middle school or high school where it's like if some, someone comes out of the cave and they discover something new on the outside, but then to go back into the cave, they can never have that same experience again of not of not being able to have what they experienced on the outside. 
it literally coming to fruition for this for this family when they go back down, they see their home flooded, where they have to go back to the cave, uh, like the, the cave of having nothing at all. They know they can't live that way anymore and have any happiness that way because they've experienced something else on the outside on top of that animal. Yes, I would agree with that. I also like the the use of the like the red herring of the like not the red herring. I try to think the what's what the proper term is basically is like the, oh the foreshadowing of the uh, the idea of the smell because we basically see early in the movie that Dasan basically can basically points the Kai on immediately because he says that all the people smell the same, which should not be if they all are coming from different places. And then the idea of the smell gets brought up throughout the film leads to the point that's the trigger that leads the father to kill the rich man. Yep. And so, like, so speaking of the smell, uh, at some point, the the rich husband is talking with his wife on the couch while their son is is uh, camping in the teepee in the in the yard. That was one hell of a scene, by the way. How, what? That was one hell of a scene, by the way. It was yeah, it was a great scene. Um, so he says something along the lines to his wife of he's talking about uh, the father who's driving the car, and he goes that. And his smell that crosses the line, and it's another thing of like crossing the line of rich and poor, and crossing that line of having and have not. And if you look at the movie too, and I, I, I need to send you this clip. It's from a private movie uh, Facebook group. But the way Bong Joon Ho frames things is that there's always like a, either a wall, a table, like a piece of like fabric, like a like laundry hanging down. But the idea of crossing a line is so obvious. Once it's pointed out, the characters always are crossing a line when they're doing something. Like the first time the, the, the poor boy is going up to tutor the rich daughter of the family. Uh, you see the rich wife or the rich mother cross the line going up the stairs, followed two steps later by this poor boy crossing the line going up the stairs after. If they keep on crossing that line, keep on pushing that line forward, and so eventually that line is crossed. So, again, you mentioned that smell. That goes into the idea of crossing the line, which Bong Joon-ho puts together in the way he directs the film. He never directly calls it out by any means, but it's just sub- putting that in the subconscious where if somebody points it out, you automatically have those puzzle pieces fit in your head. Yeah, indeed. I also want to touch a little bit on Ki-woo, the, the, poor, the poor son who basically gets the whole plot story because... I think it's interesting how, like, he basically gets set up by his friend Min, who is going off to study abroad, and I feel like he starts trying to copy Min's, like, I, I role. He basically tries to fill his shoes, and basically he's, at times, going, quoting word for word things that Min said earlier in the film to him. He's basically reciting the lines over, like, verbatim, and I think that was a very interesting take. It's sort of like, you know, he's basically trying to pretend to be someone else to sort of escape his own reality. I think so, and I think it's also, like, you 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 are you try and become part of like the society that you're in. And I think you you think emulating what you what you want when you can't have it. So like for like say if I was like that if for me speaking like back in middle school or high school if I didn't have something I pretended like I have it and did everything I could to act like I like I had something and that is what that's what that character did where he tried to pretend to be something else. He's trying to pretend to have someone else's charisma because he didn't have it, but he did everything he can to try to achieve it in his own way. So I think it's again being uh, being persuaded that that you're not good enough, that you need to be somebody else. 
Yeah, that's true. What'd you think of the Scholars Rock? That was sort of like the brought into this to the family, giving them a, a, as a gift by men at the beginning, saying like, and it sort of pretends, oh, like wealth is coming your way, and then we see Ki Wu basically clinging to that rock throughout the movie. It's sort of like a, you like he's basically just hoping it's hope that this will somehow work out for him, and it doesn't. Well, yeah, he says that, says that wealth will come away, good fortune will come your way, and they're clutching onto this rock as an idea of hope, right? And I say, I think it's that idea that if you keep on keep on hoping for wealth, if you keep on hoping for good fortune, if you keep on hoping for these things, that eventually it's going to weigh you down and it's going to drown you. And much like how the entire southern, uh, how the entire poor aspect of this Korean society is drowned by water, you're going to find yourself suffocating and drowning yourself if you just keep on grasping onto the things that you can't get and that you can't have. Um, and which is why it's kind of funny because this family did all the steps where they weren't just hoping, they were trying to achieve it. They were doing everything they can. They were conning a rich family. But in the end, it's literally that rock falling down the stairs, awakening uh, the, the crazy man downstairs. Uh, and the blood that it's soaked with is that eventually the idea of good fortune and wealth and what's going to come to you may be soaked in blood for the things you'll get to try and have. So it, it weighs on you both emotionally and, and mentally the idea of that good fortune and wealth that you'll do everything to achieve. Yeah, and we got a great visual of that at the at the I think it's basically the end of the Scholars Rock plot that he he's basically carrying around with him when he goes down to try and talk to the crazy man to basically apologize for basically they were responsible for the old housekeeper's death because they basically like gave her a concussion. She basically bleeds out in the in the basement. And then at the end, when he's escaping, he bashes Kiwu's head in with the Scholar's Rock. You get that brilliant shot of him laying on the ground with the blood mixing with the fancy liquors on the floor. That was a great visual. Oh, it's an awesome visual. It's the perfect visual of the two different societies trying to mess together and how, how they can't blend together. They only come together and form a line. Like, again, a visual storytelling by Bong Joon-ho in this movie. Picture, picture first. Yeah, picture it was great. I also like the idea, the sort of the the thread sort of connects the beginning and the end of the movie, where we see the beginning of the movie that Kiwu basically climbing to the top of his toilet to get the Wi-Fi signal, basically searching for a signal there. At the end, he basically is decoding the Morse code message that his father sends him underneath the rich family's house, which has since been sold from them to a German family. And I do think it was cool that we're so, sort of getting this sort of parallel that the devil the devolution of technology as the movie went on too. Yeah, no, that's very true. And the way of communicating through Wi-Fi and searching for it, but go back to the simplicity sake of the Morse code. I love how in the beginning they're searching for that Wi-Fi. They go to the highest point by the, by the toilet or whatever to get the Wi-Fi. And then there's the shot of when their home is flooded, you have the daughter just sitting on the toilet while it's exploding, smoking a cigarette. That's at the point where that's where she was getting her bliss of communicating with free Wi-Fi. And now instead, the world's literally falling the shit around her, literally. And she has, she has no Wi-Fi to worry about, and she's just smoking a cigarette. So again, going back to the same spot with the Wi-Fi, and it's when their world, that's when they're at their highest, when they get, that's when they're at their happiest at the start of the movie, when they can get that free Wi-Fi. It's something that simple. And then at the end, when they're in their home and it's ruined, she's back in that same spot with no happiness at all. Yeah, this is just such a fantastic story. We have tons of layers, a lot of great complexity, great characters developed throughout this movie too. And I have to, I have to say, like, I think I feel bad for Kiwu. That song's the clearest loser in this movie. But who do you think is the biggest scumbag in the movie? Who do I think is the biggest scumbag in the movie? Ah, uh, 
I mean, I mean, it's tough to say. I honestly think it's probably. I really badly can't say so I think it's. Uh, I don't know. I would have to say it's probably the father of the wealthy family, Gyeon Si. Um, again, pronouncing that is tough, yeah. but I think the. I think because he is least willing to learn about the other aspects of society, those less fortunate to him, when he has the means and the ability to understand it fully. I think the wife, uh, Young Kyo, I think she is the, the star of the movie from an actress standpoint, from a performance standpoint, because I don't feel that she's... Uh, Come back for taking advantage of the of the poor people because she's just completely ignorant to the fact they exist. And trying to convince her otherwise would be near impossible. Meanwhile, that wealthy father, uh, he has the knowledge where he could understand it and he chooses not to. Yeah, he's pretty bad. I will also say too, like he's number one. I think number two is the poor daughter. I don't think she's. I don't think she comes across very well in the movie either. I think she is absolutely hilarious, and I won't say a bad word about her because she made me laugh so many times. I will say, though, her gambit to get the chauffeur fired so her father could be the new driver was actually hysterical. Yeah, it was great. And that scene with, uh, again, this is this is Young Kyo, the wife, or the rich wife, when she's, like, holding up the, the underwear with, like, the gloves, thinking, like, it's toxic poison, <laughs> and, like, the acting in there. That's so over the top and wonderful. They talk about that scene, like the way those the way they interact with the couple, explaining how they have to fire the driver. It's just, it's pure comedy. How someone, how would someone think could do this in the in the car? Blah 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 blah. That scene cracked me up. Yeah. Also, I think right behind Da Song, his biggest loser in the movie is the chauffeur driver. He, although he probably did better getting out of that situation. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he was getting paid, uh, getting paid very handsomely, but. I mean, he, he he gets fired without without cause, and we don't hear from him again. So it, it, it's a, it's a tough luck. Tough tough luck, and the house the housekeeper gets a bad draw to gets a bad draw too. And I think the poor peach allergy thing was also very unfortunate. Yeah, the peach allergy thing was unfortunate, but I mean, the, the way that they achieve that peach allergy cause thing and like the hot sauce like blood, and, and you have the father Kiyasa when he lifts the napkin up to show it to the rich wife to show it to young Kyo and it's like he has, he has a face of pain as he shows up the napkin with hot sauce showing that uh, so the wife thinks it's blood again a great moment in the movie There's, I also love the visual shot specifically of when the daughter uh, is blowing the poor daughter uh, Ki Jung is blowing the peach fuzz off the peach as, before they put their plan into action and you see the peach fuzz Blowing in the air slightly. That's a great visual from Bong Joon Ho. Yeah, Bong Joon Ho. I mean, there's like there's like these five different movies in this one movie. Right? I mean, you got the heist aspect of them trying basically just one by one find their way into this home. You have the the, store, the themes of class in there. You have the family relationships. There's like something for everybody. Yeah, there's something for everybody in this movie. Everybody should watch it. Everyone, everybody should watch this movie. Yeah, this this was an A plus on your chart, right? Uh, it is an A plus. Yeah, it is an A plus. Yeah, indeed. I I second it. A plus. Go watch Parasite. Get over the subtitles. You can deal with it. If you've watched Laws and you've watched the Jin and Sun scene, basically, it's that kind of commitment for a whole movie. Yeah, I mean, turn your phone off if you can. I mean, you're gonna have to read the subtitles. Please don't get scared away by the subtitles. Every every person who's seen this movie has either told me.
me or text me going, it was totally worth it. So at this point now, it, I mean, it won an Oscar. It's the first forum film to win Best Picture. You saw the ovation it got at the Oscars where everybody was happy for Bong Joon-ho and everybody involved with the movie that it won. It got the, it got its deserved praise. And frankly, this movie, the, with the way the Oscars are going to be this year, if we have awards at all, this is going to be the best motion picture that for a very long time this year. Yeah, it will. John, thanks for all the time today. I really appreciate it. Before I let you go, I'm going to ask everybody every week on here, we get some streaming recommendations from people. What have you been streaming of late? What have I been streaming of late? Well, luckily, Redbox has been doing this buy one, get one free thing. So I've been dominating Redbox. I mentioned I finally saw Sonic, finally saw The Invisible Man, uh, saw the rhythm section, saw The Way Back. The Way Back with Ben Affleck, that basketball coaching movie, was very, very good. Um, it blew, Ben Affleck was excellent. It's not your typical sports movie. There are different layers to it and the ending. Uh, I personally love that I can see how some people wouldn't expect it, but it's well worth the price admission. And otherwise, HBO Max has come out, Mike. I don't know if you have that, but the their movie library is incredible. I've watched uh, the Multi-Falcon, Spock, uh, uh, the Manchurian Candidate I watched again. They had all the Turner classic movies. So I'm going back and watching movies from the 1940s and 50s as well. I'm falling asleep to episodes of Who's Line to Anyway because I love that show. So those are the things that I'm streaming right now. They have Who's Line on HBO Max, all of them? Yes, Who's Line. All the original eight seasons, every single episode. It's it's perfect. Right. Colin Moxley and Ryan Stiles are the best comedy duo of all time. I stand by it as of right now, today. Yeah. I, I love that show. I mean, back in the day, I watched it on ABC. I've I've watched the reboot on on CW too. I do think they then the incredible thing is they still got it. Those guys. Yeah, no, they did absolutely. And I I watched the reboot as well. It was not terrible by any means. Um, I just didn't stick with it as much. There there is something to the old episodes. The old episodes are they still stand the test of time. They're still incredibly funny, and I I I have fallen asleep watching to them uh, for the past week straight. Yeah, what is your go-to Who's Lying game and you're excited when it comes on the episode? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, that's a great question. Mm, I I mean, Scenes from a Hat is a very popular one. Uh, so that's a little cliche, but I, I do love that one. But also, I think uh, Dinner Party, when you have the one, uh, the one guy or gal being like the host of a dinner party, people ringing the doorbell, coming in. Yeah. Uh, acting out as different things. I think there have been some great moments from that. So I think the most, Steve from a Hat is probably number one, but a close number two is, is Dinner Party. Yeah, my top three, I think of all time, I think there's four I really love. Steve from a Hat's obvious. Whenever we get a hoedown, that's always fantastic. Hoedown is good. Ryan Stiles hates the hoedown. Ryan Stiles, he, he does hate the hoedown. It hasn't been on, on the new one as much. That The hoedown is great. I think questions always, always fun because I love watching them try and trip each other up with the questions. That's always hilarious. It is, but I I wish I could do a questions-only game because I think I'd be all right at it. I say that, and I'm sure I would get fooled by somebody. But it, it is funny to try and, to try and then to carry conversations with only questions. That is a good one. That's a good one. Another one that I think that has they've done this much better in, in the new version is they have the Remember the game that was like two lines only, basically, where like Colin basically is the wrong person. The other two only have two lines they could use for the entire 
uh, scene? Yeah. Yeah. They have the twist on the modern version is basically like instead of being two lines, they get two audience members' phones, and the peep and the each person gets a phone. They have to read a text from the phone as their lines. Oh, okay. I haven't seen that from the newer episodes. I, I must have missed that that segment. But yeah, they, it's been the last like year or two they've done that. And it's hysterical because you you get really funny insights of what these people are actually doing. The people who volunteer their phones. It's hysterical. Some of the, the lines they can sneak in in these situations. I can imagine they're incredibly out of context. Yeah, it's fantastically out of context. And I remember one like, actually aired recently. I think one of the lines somebody read off the text is like, "That show's still on." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, fair enough. Yeah, fair and, then, enough. and then they were taking digs at that, at that audience for the rest of the show, like they do with the running jokes. It was it was hilarious. Yeah, I will say if you like improv too, you should watch uh, the Middle Edition Sports Special on Netflix, where they have three hour long improv specials, uh, and what they do with that hour. Uh, and, and all the impacts for those three specials was dynamite funny. And so if, if you do like comedy, if you do like improv, the, there are three hours of laugh out loud stuff with Millis and Sports on Netflix. Yeah, I think I actually watched the Seinfeld stand-up special recently on Netflix. That was a little meh for me. I feel like he's kind of like... I didn't like it. Yeah. I was bored. Yeah, like there were only like three times the whole thing I actually laughed out loud. Yeah, I, I didn't even laugh out loud three times. I put it on its background noise, and it didn't grab my attention at all. So, I, I would agree. I, it, it's not that great. Yeah, it's not that great. The other Netflix thing is I did finish Tiger King. You did finish what? Say that I, one more time. I finished Tiger King. Tiger King? Yeah. I mean, what? I mean, you're late to the party. What did you think of Tiger King? It is like you said. You nailed it perfectly. Is that you, the only ones you root for are the Tigers. Everybody else sucks. Yeah, everybody else is a piece of garbage. Everything yeah. else is, is a hot piece of garbage. I will say, though, I think the people who actually work for the zoo themselves, like the lower-level people, are not bad. I think anybody who, like, is an animal handler or above wow. is, is, is awful. Yeah, I mean, but the thing is, if you're still working for those zoos and working for those animals, you're feeding them, like, the shitty food and stuff like that. Like, you're still contributing to the problem. Yeah, I get the sense that with some people, it's like, you know what, like, if I'm not here, maybe somebody far worse will be doing this job. Yeah, I mean, they, they think that they're doing well. It's just, I mean, and now, uh, now Carol Baskin's what? Got ownership of... She did. She got the zoo. Shows. She got the zoo. But also, they reopened, they reopened the investigation into her ex-husband who disappeared. And there are reports that the that like in the reopening of the investigation, it was very obvious that the will that was left by her ex husband who disappeared was forged. You like know, there have been like official statements that came out that said lawyers were like, I don't know how this got passed. It's obviously a forgery. Yeah. So she's going to go down too. Yeah, I'm just waiting for. I think when the inevitable season two comes, it's going to be like as big a disaster as a how as a making a murderer season two was. I don't think I don't think I don't think it's I don't think there's gonna be season two because I don't think the parties involved are gonna want to do it again, especially Carol Baskin. She's not yeah. gonna go on camera ever again. They're gonna do something and, with it because it was too much of a hit. They're not. They're gonna find some way to make make a meal of it. It's gonna, not gonna be nearly as good. What I would like, I would rather have like a three part, like legit political, like like 
police investigation into it. Like, from strictly, like, what is illegal, what is not, and what has happened since the show. Yeah. That's what I, I want, like, what is good, what is bad, without the plot. Yeah, I can see that. And, John, thanks again for coming on. Next time you come on, like, hopefully we'll get we'll back on in the summer. We Maybe by that time we'll have some movies to sort of lay out and sort of do what we did last year, do the summer movie preview. Although it might be a bit later in summer, because depending on when these theaters actually open. I mean, it's probably going to be a, like a like a early, like a late summer, early fall uh, movie preview. But yeah, you know I'm down. Yeah, I know you're down. And for those who want to follow you on social media, keep up with the blog. How can they do that? Uh, blog is stankosstance.wordpress.com. And I am on Twitter and all social media at jstanko99. All right, John. Thanks again. I want to... I also want to thank you. I want to thank uh, John Wertheim for coming on as well. He was awesome in the tennis. And I know he talked about my blog as well. This week, I'm going to be talking about, about the NBA players hesitation about going back. Some of them are discussing this. I have my thoughts on that coming on the blog, just on the suffering.wordpress.com. Have you been following any of the instant reactions I've been throwing up there the last couple of weeks? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Mike, in terms of like the, like the hesitation for the NBA players coming back, like, I've seen what you've written, and I get it. Um, I saw today that they were recording that they're expanding the roster, so if people don't want to come from the NBA, that they have a chance to fill that roster spot, which I think is a good move. Uh, personally, as a Celtics fan, Mike, I'm stoked because that means Taco Fall is going to be on the roster. He's going to be at every game, so that's exciting for me. Um, so... I don't know what's going to happen. I think you have to understand the hesitation and, and the reason why people wouldn't want to go. Yeah. So, I, but to be fair to the NBA, that they have tackled this problem better than better than any other sport has. While NHL, under the radar, was kind of the first one to get to get the ground running from the from the four major sports. So, I'll be curious what's going to happen. But you know what, might come July thirtieth or thirty first, whenever they start this, I'm going to be watching every single NBA game that I can. Yeah, I will. I cannot wait to watch it as well. Check out that blog. Subscribe to the podcast, please. iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Spotify. Search for all the old episodes there. John's appearances are on there. Also, you can check us out on YouTube. Mike Phelps on YouTube. I put the individual segments out there, including John. Our chat's going to be up there on YouTube shortly. Yep, and I will be sharing that for sure. Yeah, it'll also be on John's YouTube channel. John, you want to get that out while you're on? Uh, JSanko99. Really easy switch. Really easy search. That's a good choice. Follow him there. Feedback and star rating as well for this podcast would be fantastic. Help make things even better going forward. You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. I think the hashtag is going to be the smell. It's going to be the smell? All right, that's fair. That's that, fair. I'll tell you right now, Mike, I smell right now because I played 36 holes of golf today. Uh, I am stinky, stinky, stinky. So when we're done recording this podcast, I'm going to shower. So smell is a perfect, perfect hashtag. Yep. Hashtag the smell next week on the podcast. We are finally diving into baseball, talking to Anthony McCarron about the tone of these negotiations. Maybe I then we'll actually have a deal. I can talk to Phil Fred, our legal guy about it. Baseball people here too. We recapping the 30 for 30 on McGuire and Sosa. Until then, everybody stay safe. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.